All right, if you've got your Bible, turn to Acts chapter 9. As we continue in the story of the Acts of the Apostles, of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, the first century church. As you turn there, let me go ahead and say Happy Father's Day. All right. I hope, hope dads, look, if, if you are a, a man in here, uh, not even for just dads, but if you are a man in here, uh, then we would love to invite you afterwards, if you haven't already been, into what we call the man cave. For Father's Day, we created the man cave. We've got some good snacks and food in there for you, uh, and some hats as well. Uh, the hats look like this, and so that's, that's yours to take and, and represent Redemption Church well as you... Go around with that hat, just a gift to you. There's also some great dad jokes. If you go look at the table, there's some dad jokes. Uh, and, and so there's some really funny ones there. I, I was tempted to share a few with you this morning, and then I remembered that I started with a knock-knock joke like two weeks ago. And I figured we got enough jokes for now, and you can go read them, the dad jokes in the man cave later on. Um, I think about my dad, and I, I, I'm an incredibly blessed person to have a really great father that is my hero, still have a great relationship with my father. And, but I also recognize on Father's Day, for, for many, um, days like this are painful for various reasons. It, it, today can be a painful day if you have lost your father. Today can be a painful day if maybe your dad wasn't so great. Um, and, and so here's what I, maybe you're here and, and you've noticed that Attendance is maybe a little lower today. Did you know that Father's Day is actually one of the lowest attended Sundays during the year for church? It's kind of sad when you contrast it, especially with one of the highest attended days for church in the year is Mother's Day. See, we we have this thing going on in Western society, at least it seems right now in modern times, where women are driving the spirituality of the home more than men. And I would challenge you men that are here with us today to look at the scriptural calling of you being the, the priest, the pastor of your home. This is a role that God has given you in your home to lead your family well. And so for those of you men that are here today, let's give it up for the men that showed up on Father's Day. I want to thank you uh, for being here and not choosing Father's Day to go fishing early in the morning and, and avoid church and just have church in the boat. Uh, I appreciate you coming and fellowshipping with us today in God's Word. For many of you, maybe your father hasn't been to church in a long time, and maybe he's not even a believer. Uh, my father didn't become a believer until um, he married my mom, which is his second wife, and right before one of my sisters was Born, she was born the day after Christmas, 1979, and and so Christmas Day, 1979, my father uh, became a, a follower of Jesus Christ, and uh, he was meeting with my mom's brother, my uncle, and just talking to him about he had already had one marriage and two kids in that marriage, and he had messed some things up there, and uh, it wasn't all his fault, but he was thinking, man, I. I I want to get some things right in my life. And so my uncle shared the gospel with him. And not that, it was not the first time my father had heard the gospel, but it was the first time that he really heard the gospel. And, and my dad will tell you, uh, if you get to know him really well, that he was a bit of a hellraiser in high school uh, and 
cause a whole lot of trouble doing things. And he will tell you most likely he graduated high school merely by the fact that they were just ready to be done with him. And so they just gave him a diploma so that he would leave the high school. He was 21 years old when he got that high school diploma because he had started so late uh, in, in, in school. He was the only one of his nine siblings that actually graduated high school. And so as he finished that, man, he was on a tear for most of his life. And if you, from what I've heard, if you knew my father in high school and you saw the godly, hardworking man that he is today, you would not think they were the same people. But this, is, this comes to the crux of what I wanted to talk to you about today. One, one idea that I really want you to get this one idea today. God, it's at the top of your bulletin, God can redeem anyone from anything at any time. Amen? Let's say that together. See on the top of your bulletin. God can redeem anyone from anything at any time. This is the one truth I want you to get in our story today. We're going to look at a very familiar story in the very beginning of Acts chapter 9 of the conversion of Saul, or you may know him as the Apostle Paul. And we're going to look at his story, and what we're going to see in that story is this truth, that God can redeem anyone from anything at any time. Now, one of the things that's fascinating about all of this is that you, I love stories of people who uh, pursue truth um, and, and then find it. One of my favorite stories that I love, that, the genre almost, that I, I've started collecting in my mind, I'm just going to list a few names, are people who were against God, against especially the Christian God, against Jesus Christ, and in a pursuit of truth, most of them in a pursuit of proving that Jesus is not the Son of God, find Jesus, encounter Jesus, encounter His holiness, and become followers of Christ. I think about names like Lee Strobel, as a, as a more contemporary, who wrote the, the, the book Case for Christ. There's a movie out about his story that you can watch kind of his story. He was an investigative journalist. His wife went to church, and she surrendered to Christ, became a follower of Christ, and he was not a fan of what was happening. It changed his wife entirely, and he was not okay with it. So he decided he would use his investigative reporting uh, skills and job to disprove the resurrection. And the movie and the book both tell you that story of how he ultimately came to the realization that Jesus Christ did rise from the dead and that he was the Son of God and he became a follower of Jesus. He did not come easily. He did not come quietly. But he did become a follower of Christ. I think about stories like Robbie Zacharias. You may have heard of that name. Who He was an atheist and he actually uh, attempted to kill himself. And, uh, and just in, in just absolute hopelessness of his life as a young man, he attempted to kill himself. And it was uh, Campus Crusade for Christ, I believe, that, that had sent a missionary into that area that came and shared the gospel with him. Uh, and he became a follower of Christ and now is a great apologist defending uh, the faith in many great ways. I think of one of his protégés that passed away recently of cancer, Nabil Qureshi. Nabil Qureshi was a devoted Muslim, and he was going to medical school to become a, a medical doctor uh, by the sovereignty of God. His roommate, who was also studying to be a medical doctor, was a devout follower of Jesus Christ. And they were both on the debate team, 
And so they were both skilled at verbal debate. And so just for fun, they would debate their religions with each other, Islam versus Christianity. And for four years of college, this happened. And, and then even into medical school, they would continue these conversations. And it wasn't until uh, Nabil Qureshi was challenged, he became a part of this, this group of people, younger people who were real smart. And some of them were Christians, some of them were atheists, some of them were Islam, some of them were different religions. And they, they would all come together and they would debate different ideas and present on different ideas. And someone had presented on Jesus Christ, his, the historicity, the validity historically of Christ as a figure. And, and so he had a lot of jabs and questions and things. And so then he was challenged. We want you to present on the life of Muhammad, the, the, the prophet. And so as he started to study the life of Muhammad... In, in even his Islamic writings, he found that Muhammad was not the man that everyone claimed that he was. And he found even within these Islamic writings, these inconsistencies in who Muhammad was and in the Quran itself. And it really started to mess with his mind. And he started to go through this difficult process. And he got to be in this group with a guy named Gary Habermas. You've heard me talk about him before. He's one of the... Uh, best-known defenders of the resurrection today. And so he got to talk with Gary Habermas himself in a small group about the resurrection. And and as he pursued truth, he encountered God. And as he encountered Jesus Christ, the risen Savior, he encountered holiness. And as he encountered holiness, it changed his life. My very favorite one, there's a list of many more, my favorite one personally that I love his style of writing is C.S. Lewis, Clive Staples Lewis. I like C.S. Lewis because I just love the way that he writes. Uh, he has just an unbelievable way with words. His books have, have shaped my life in, in a great way. And so we'll talk more about him as we go. But the common denominator in all these stories is their pursuit of truth. And so here... Here's a question for you today. So the one truth I want you to know is that God can redeem anyone from anything at any time. The one question I want you to ask yourself is, are you willing to pursue truth and embrace it when you find it? Even if it contradicts what you currently believe. Are you willing to pursue truth and embrace it when you find it, even if it contradicts what you currently believe? So that's what's called intellectual honesty or intellectual integrity. Everybody say intellectual integrity. See, intellectual integrity is saying, I'm going to pursue truth. And when I find truth that contradicts my current belief, I will be willing to submit my current belief to the truth that I find. We should all live in intellectual integrity. This is one of my favorite things about the Christian faith. We don't have to play fairy tales. We don't have to pretend fairy tales are true. See, for so many faiths out there, they are built on such shaky foundations that they discourage investigation. They discourage real, true intellectual pursuit. Because if you start to find some of these faiths at their foundation, you find just how shaky and cracked they are at the very foundation. But when you pursue truth in Christianity... You will find it. And when you find it, you come to a moment where you have to decide if you're going to have intellectual integrity 
Are you going to accept what you find, even if it contradicts what you currently believe? Or are you just going to say, forget it. I'm going to believe what I believe because this is how it makes me feel the way I want to feel. One of the things you will find is you will have a confrontation with holiness. A confrontation with holiness. This is the thing that we see Saul has in the beginning. <laughs> We're not going to stand and read the whole passage for sake of time, but we will go through 9, 1 through 19. So now I want to look at 9, 1 through 15, where we see Saul have a confrontation with holiness. It says, but, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues of Damascus so that if he found anyone belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So we see there tied back to 8 chapter 3 and then tied back to 7. We see Saul show up first in 7 as they are stoning Stephen He's there holding the coats, which is kind of a, a point of authority that he's doing that. And so there's obvious approval. It even tells us in the text that there's approval of murdering Stephen because of his faith. And then in Acts 8, uh, it tells us in verse 3, but Saul was ravaging the church. The word there for ravaging means like a wild beast. What, what Saul is doing at this point is he's kicking in people's doors going into their home forcefully, tying people up, binding them, dragging them out of their homes, and taking them to the temple court in Jerusalem. And so now, he's gotten word that the way, everybody say the way. I love the way it describes, I love the way it describes the way. See, we use the word Christian, that word is only in the Bible three times, I believe, and, and not always in good light. See, they, they go back to when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And they identify themselves as followers of the way. I would encourage you, because words do matter, to think about the way that you even identify yourself in your faith. I, I, Christian is not a bad word. I, I would say it's not maybe an insufficient Word. And what I mean by that is when we say Christian, we think of a philosophy, a religion, a, a mental way of viewing the world. But it, that word in itself does not necessarily connotate action. It doesn't connotate life in, in movement that where we move, like Wesley said, from our belief to our action. One of the things I've said here a lot is we do what we believe. And so I love when we sing that song about what we believe, because if we truly believed, if we truly believed all those things we sing about, it would have implications into our lives. And so I prefer to call people followers of Christ or followers of the way, just because it, it, there's a connotation. Following means action. Following means movement. Following means focus. Followers have to focus on who they're following. When we lived in the country for a short time, I am, if you know me, a city kid. I'm allergic to pretty much everything outside. I, I, I didn't grow up hunting and fishing, and I grew up working on cars and, and doing mechanic stuff. And, but there was a short season where we lived in the country, 
And so I had to bush hog. And I remember my dad teaching me not to follow the line, but to find a focal point and to just look at that focal point while I'm driving. And if I'll constantly focus on that point, then I'll, I'll mow a, a bush hog a, a straighter line, right? See, following indicates that there's a focal point. There's someone we're looking at. See, Christian, Christian to me has this idea of like, like an additive to our life, like throwing salt on your food. It's just something that you add. It's just part of who you are. But following, if I'm following someone, I have to watch them. I have to pay attention to what they say, what they do, and, and I, try to, I try to do what they say, do what they do. That's what was happening here. And so, so Saul hears that this has started to spread to Damascus. As people started to spread out, it's started to happen. And it's about 135 miles north. So he gets basically extradition papers. And he takes these extradition papers that give him legal right to travel 135 miles north, go to Damascus and do the same thing he's been doing in Jerusalem. Start kicking down doors, binding people up, and then dragging them all the way back to Jerusalem. And then on his way, verse 4, Verse 3, now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. He's getting near Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul. Now, that repetition shows importance. Pay attention. Why are you persecuting, what does it say? Me. Well, that's interesting. Has he been directly persecuting Jesus Christ himself? No. He's been persecuting his followers. Find encouragement in this, children of God. That Jesus Christ so closely identifies and associates himself with his body, his bride, his, his followers, that the implication in his statement here is that to persecute the church is to persecute Jesus. And he's that closely identified with you. Jesus has not just set some religious system for you to follow and said, hey, I'll come back one day and you better be at work when I do. I think sometimes that's how we think about Jesus. As if he just gave us these rules, these, this, morale, this moral code to follow and, and we better stick straight to following the moral code because he's going to come back and he's going to find us and when he finds us, we better be at work. No, he... He, is, he, he desires to be intimately involved in your life as you follow him. And he said, who are you, Lord? Now, don't get confused there. I don't think he knows it's Jesus. I don't think he's referring to that in deity. That word for Lord can just mean sir, uh, a respectful tone towards another male of authority. I, I think that's what's happening here. Who are you, sir? And he said... I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Wow. Now why is this significant? Well, if you're Saul, you have been on a pursuit of truth your entire life. Saul is one of the most highly educated religious men of that day. I mean, he went to the best seminary and got the Ph.D., 
by the best teachers and professors that there were of that time in Jewish history, Jewish theology, Jewish practice. He was climbing the ladder. He was, there's later in his own writings, he'll tell you basically that he's, he's more educated than you, he's more Jewish than you, and he's better behaved than you. But then he says, but I count all of that as a pile of garbage compared to what it is to know Jesus. See, Saul was on a pursuit of truth. I mean, he's constantly studying, constantly studying the scriptures, the Old Testament, and, and trying to figure out who Yahweh is and, and what he wants for us and what he desires for us. And, and he longs maybe more than, than many others for the Messiah to come. As a true Jew, as a true Jewish man, educated, following, he wants so bad for this Messiah to show up. And he thinks right now that in this point in the story, up to this moment, he is convinced he's following God's will. He's thinking back to 1 Kings 18, the prophet Elijah, as he calls down fire on on the altar and then kills all the prophets of Baal and correcting that false worship of a false god. And he is, I think, seeing himself in a similar light as he is kicking down doors and binding people. And he's zealous and active in thinking, I am doing all this in a way to honor Yahweh, to honor God. But in his pursuit of truth, he has an encounter with holiness. What does the word holiness mean? It means set apart or different. It's a hard word to define, honestly. Um, it, It means... Really, the best way to define holiness is to say God. And the best way to define God is to say holy. See, even... It's such a difficult word to describe because it means so different, so other than. See, God God will never run the same currents that the world runs. He never will. He's always going to be set apart and different. And to follow him and to try to live in godliness will always set you apart from the world. If you are comfortable in the world, you are not pursuing holiness. If you are pursuing holiness, you will always find yourself set apart and different. And so he encounters holiness. And then I love that he just tells him who he is and then just gives him direction. But rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. Salvation requires submission. Saul does it. So the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. So Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, his eyelids were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand, and they brought him into Damascus. You know who leads more people to Jesus than any other demographic in the church? New believers. New believers 
will bring more people to saving faith in Jesus Christ than anyone. Why? Because immediately they're surrounded usually by people who don't know Jesus. And they say, check out what I found. Those people see the change in their life. But then, just like, just like most things, the newness wears off. I was talking with a friend uh, yesterday who uh, just got a, a boat, and he was talking about how the old saying that the best two days in a boat owner's life are the day that he buys the boat and the day that he sells the boat. And he said, he said this boat, like everything else, like the camper that we owned before it, will be great for the first two to three years, and then it'll grow old and we'll sell it. So we, we do that with things, right? We, we get excited about things, and then a few years later they become old, and sadly sometimes that's what we do with our faith as well. We just let it grow old and stale, and we lose that encounter with holiness It's the man who travels. So Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Spiritual growth requires spiritual focus. He's He's not failing to eat and drink because he can't see. Some people have said that. I think it's a really dumb explanation of that. Because blind people eat and drink all the time, right? You, you don't see blind people not eat and not drink. He's not, this is, this is fasting. This is spiritual preparation. This is after having an encounter with holiness, everything has been shaken in his life. Everything about his identity, everything about his education, everything about his ambition, everything about all things, the way he sees the world has changed. And so he's taken a minute to focus. See, so often we just go, well, I went to church on Sunday. It's great. And, and we treat church like uh, a fueling station for us spiritually. That you start to run on an empty tank spiritually by Friday or Saturday. And so you come and you hope you can get a little more gas in the tank when you come on Sunday morning. That is not what following Jesus looks like. This is not the spiritual gas station. Please don't put that pressure on me. This is the gathering and celebration of God's children as we look at God's word and we sit under the preaching of God's word to continue our sanctification that should continue after you leave here. This is not a drive-by. See, Saul knows that something happened. And he can't just go back to life the way that it was. And so he takes a, a minute to just focus in prayer and fasting. So while he's doing that, there's a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. Not the same Ananias, obviously, that lied earlier and died. Obviously, it was a fairly popular name. The Lord said to him in a vision... Ananias. And he says, here I am, Lord. Now, if you're Ananias, this is incredibly exciting because all believers at this moment are new believers. The church is so new that anybody following Jesus at this point is still a pretty fresh 
new believer. And so how exciting is it, man, that the Lord himself is showing up to you in a vision. And so you, you, so you go, I'm not going to be like Samuel and, and mistake your voice. When you call my name, I'm going to say, go ahead and here I am, Lord, which is always the right response. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight and at the house of Judas. Oh, this is great. You're giving me, not only are you showing up, you're giving me a job to do. This is exciting. I know that house. I know that guy. Again, not the same Judas. And look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. Time out. Wait, what? Who? For behold, he is praying. That's great, Jesus. I'm glad he's praying. He needs Jesus. He needs to pray. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias. Oh, so you told him my name. Thank you for that. I want you to go to him and lay hands on him. I lay some hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Jesus, don't we want him to stay blind? Wouldn't that be safer for everybody if this guy was blind? It's a lot harder for him to kick down doors and tie people up and drag them out of their homes if he's blind, right? So I think we just leave him blind. So Ananias answers, Lord, you're awesome. Um, Now, I've heard from many about this man and how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here, I don't know if you know this, Jesus. You ever notice how we try to inform Jesus when he asks us to do things? We always love to, just like Moses, when God called Moses, go, Moses goes, I don't know if you know this, God. I'm not very good at talking. Right? And so Jesus starts to put a call on our life. And rather than just embrace the truth of the calling that he gives us, we start to try to inform him to make sure he has all the information that he needs. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind on all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. See, you have two men here who have now been confronted with the risen Savior. Have you? Have you been confronted with the risen Savior? Have you, like Lee Strobel, C.S. Lewis, Ravi Zacharias, Nabil Qureshi, Saul Tarsus, Ananias of Damascus encountered the risen Savior in His holiness? And if so, what does He ask you to do? Because when you encounter Him, He doesn't just say hello. There will always be a call on your life. When you encounter holiness, you will get a right view of yourself and a right view of God. You will, one, see how holy and amazing He is, and two, see how unworthy you are and how much you need Him. It'll be humbling. C.S. Lewis said, A man can no more diminish God's glory by refusing to worship Him than a lunatic can put out the sun by scribbling darkness on the wall of his cell. See, when you act like you're going to ignore God, that doesn't change anything for him. 
He, he doesn't need the perfect circumstances. See, I think so often we become guilty in modern society of, of, of working real hard to set the mood. We've got to get the lights right. We've got to get the, the, the tone right. We've got to... You got to ask it just right. We got to make it real easy for you. Jesus just showed up in in the worst of circumstances. It's in the middle of the road against a guy who wants nothing to do with him. But God can redeem anyone from anything at any point. Next, he was commissioned to suffer and serve. Look at verses 16 through 18. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother. Mm. I love this. I love that the first word he speaks to him is brother. See, last week when we talked about how the racial tension between the Jews and the Samaritans and how it was only the gospel that can reconcile that. It's not just racial tension. Listen, the gospel is the, is the great unifier that's, that transcends all dividers. Anything that divides us, the gospel can unify. And so here is Ananias who just moments before that was in great danger of Saul of Tarsus kicking down his door, tying him up, and dragging him back to Jerusalem. And now he calls him brother. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes. And he regained his sight And then he rose and was baptized. This is just an incredible, incredible story that only the gospel could accomplish. But we 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 must not miss what God tells Ananias. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Now, was this punishment? because of all the bad things that Saul had done? No. We, we do a disjustice to the gospel when we say that following Jesus will just make everything in your life great. That's not the way he works. It, it will entail suffering. When you follow a man who is publicly hated, publicly humiliated, and publicly executed, chances are things may not go smoothly. And following Jesus means that you will encounter suffering in your life, but it's, it's not always punishment. It's often a way of how God grows us. C.S. Lewis came to God quite reluctantly. He actually first became what's called a theist before he became a follower of Jesus. See, he was an atheist believing that there was no God, and as he was studying and figuring things out. He, he said that he became probably the most reluctant convert in all of England because he finally realized that there had to be a God. Now, this wasn't his conversion to Christianity. This was just his conversion to realizing there has to be a God. 
And then it, he'll tell you that it was a, in his book, Surprised by Joy, he tells of the experience of being surprised by the joy that he ultimately found in Christ and a lot of that through suffering that Jesus took him through. And then later in his children's books about Narnia, he tells this great story in the, in, uh, the, the Dawn, Voyage of the Dawn Shredder. Uh, he tells a story about Eustace, one of the main characters. He's this young boy who had developed an evil heart and he was selfish and greedy and just, uh, I mean, just annoyingly a jerk, Eustace was. And so Eustace, evil heart, uh, through this situation on an island, he becomes a dragon uh, through trying to find this gold. And, and he wants to eventually escape being a dragon. He, he, he gets tired of being this dragon. And so Aslan, the lion who represents Jesus, leads him to this fountain of pure water to bathe in. Now, C.S. Lewis writes this in Eustace's voice, but many literary scholars believe that this is Lewis talking about his experience of becoming a follower of Christ in a literary way. And so let the word picture uh, play for you. The water, this is the, through the Eustace's voice as a dragon. The water was as clear as anything. And I thought if I could get there and bathe, it would ease the pain. But the lion, Aslan, told me I must undress first. So I started scratching myself and the scales began coming off all over the place. And then I scratched a little deeper and instead of just scales coming off here and there, my whole skin started peeling off beautifully. In a minute or two, I just stepped out of my skin and I could see it lying there beside me looking rather nasty. It was a most lovely feeling. So I started to go down into the well for my bath. But just as I was going to put my feet in the water, I looked down and saw that the skin on my feet was all hard and rough and wrinkled and scaly just as it was before. So Eustace then repeats the process a second and third time and increasingly despairing that he can't get it off. So then the lion, Aslan, said to him, you will have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws, though. I can tell you, but I, I was pretty nearly desperate now, so I just laid flat down on my back and I let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff itself peel off of me. And while he peeled the beastly stuff right off of me, just as I thought I'd done it myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker, darker, and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that very much, for I was very tender underneath now that I had no skin. And he threw me into the water. It started, smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious. As soon as I saw, as I started swimming and splashing, I found that the pain had gone away. And then I saw why I had turned back into a boy again. I know that was a long illustration, but I wanted you to see that 
as we submit ourselves to Jesus and he takes out the parts of us that don't look like him, sometimes it's incredibly painful. But stick through it for, stick through it for a little while and find the joy on the other side of Jesus making you who you were always meant to be. It's painful, but it's not punishment. It's not because God hates you. It's purification because he loves you. God's not trying to pay you back for the things that you've done, but he's trying to bring you back from the way that you've run. It's, it's not retribution. It's restoration. It's reconciliation. It's redemption. It's God can redeem you from anything. At any point. And then lastly, he finds strength in community. Verse 19, you may see in your Bible, is the end of one paragraph and the beginning of another. The end of one, his fasting is over. And taking food, he was strengthened after being baptized. And this little verse, it's just a fact. It's just a fact in the story, but don't miss it. For some days, he was with the disciples of Damascus. This is a big deal. This is a man who showed up to murder these people. See, God never meant for us to be alone. God has designed us to live in community. In the community of the body of Christ. Saul experiences community not through the men who led him by hand into Damascus. We don't know what happens with those guys. But from the people that he was to harm by his own hands. See, here's what's really cool about Saul, who later changes his name to Paul, which means small. He goes to Damascus with extradition letters. Now, we use another word for letters a lot of times when we talk about Paul. Epistles. Everybody say epistles. So on his way to Damascus, he has these epistles of extradition so that he can harm people. But now, what do we know Paul for? His epistles to the church. His epistles, not just to the Jewish people, but to the followers of the way. See, Jesus knows what he's doing, and he takes a man who is supposed to make his name known by these letters. See, Paul was no fool. Paul was ambitious. Saul was ambitious. He wasn't just educated. He had the road paved for him to become somebody. He was educated by the right people. He's from the right family. He had the right citizenship. He had all the privilege you could possibly imagine to become maybe the high priest. And so what better way to make his name known than to be the most zealous persecutor of those that go against Judaism? And so here he has these letters to make his name known, and now he writes letters to make Jesus' name known. That's redemption. That's reconciliation. So listen, I, I, don't know, I don't know where you're at necessarily in this. Maybe, maybe you're, you're not a follower of Christ yet and you're still walking the road to Damascus and you haven't had that encounter. Or maybe you have, maybe a few times you've had that encounter, but you just haven't even surrendered. I don't, I don't know where you're at. 
I know this. I know that Jesus can redeem anyone from anything at any point. And so today, I hope that you've been willing to pursue truth. And if you haven't given your life to Jesus, why not do it today? Why not do it today? If you are a child of God, but you have let it grow old, you let it grow stale, why not repent today? And move from just being a Christian intellectually to being a follower in your life. Or maybe you have loved ones and friends, family members, who you you wonder, I mean, could God even save them? I don't know. I mean, you know intellectually that that's true, but you just don't see any evidence in their life so you struggle. The bottom, the rest of your bulletin there are not sermon points. This is for you. Now, I also have this in the back of Make Disciples booklets that we have, our discipleship booklets. Um, you can take this, and here's what I'd encourage you to do. List three lost people that you're going to pray for God to bring them to salvation and use these prayers to pray scripture over them each day. So think about three people that you know that you would love to see them come to saving faith. They might be sitting in this room next to you. I don't know, there would be a bad thing for them to see you write their name down. They might be sitting at home and you're going to go home to them after this. I don't, know, I don't know who you would put on this list, but here's what I'd tell you. God can redeem anyone from anything at any point. And maybe, maybe, maybe you know for a fact that you're probably on somebody's list. Maybe you're sitting in here and you're sitting down next to somebody and you're kind of peeking because you wonder if they're going to write your name down because you know that they want to see you come to Christ. Why not today? As you've encountered the risen Savior in the Word of God, why not today? So, I'm going to pray these prayers. I'm going to pray them for a friend of mine that we were best friends until I got saved. And when I got saved, he quit being my friend because he said, I was too much about Jesus now. And I wouldn't hang out with him and do the things we used to do together. So his name is Derek. And I've known him for a long time. He was my friend in middle school. He was my friend in high school. And... And then early in college, when I got saved, that friendship disappeared. So I'm going to pray it over Derek. But when I say Derek, I want you to pray in your mind, in your heart, for whoever yours is. Okay? Lord, I pray that you draw Derek to yourself. I pray that Derek will seek to know you. I pray that Derek will hear 
and believe the word of God for what it really is. I ask you, Lord, to prevent Satan from blinding Derek to the truth. Holy Spirit, I ask you to convict Derek of sin and the need for Christ's redemption. I ask that you send someone who will share the gospel with Derek. I also ask that you give me or Derek the opportunity, me or someone else, the opportunity, the courage, and the right words to share with Derek. Lord, I pray that Derek will turn from sin and follow Christ. Lord, I pray that Derek will put all of his trust in Christ. Lord, I pray that Derek will confess Christ as Lord, grow in faith, and bear fruit for your glory. Amen. God can redeem anyone from anything at any point including you, including those that you love. So what we're going to do now is we're going to take a time to respond to God's word. So here's, here's what I want you to do. We're going to sing a song and as we're going to stand and, and do all that to create the opportunity. But during that opportunity, I'll be down here. And, and if, if you think you may be somebody's, may, you may be on somebody's list like this and, and, and you've been waiting for whatever reason, whatever excuses, whatever questions you've been waiting to, to surrender to Christ, I, why not today? Come talk to me and, and let's, let's talk through what it is for you to be a follower of Christ. If you, if you didn't have to think real hard about who these names would be on your list, and you knew real quick who it is that you would love to see come to salvation, I would encourage you to write that name down. Come down here with somebody Men, this is a great opportunity for you to lead your homes, grab your wife, grab your children, lead your homes, lead your families, and come pray for whoever's on your list together. If you see somebody you know and love and you're pretty sure you know who they've got written on that list, come sit down, come put your hand on their shoulder and pray with them. Because God can redeem anyone from anything at any point. All right, let's stand, let's... Respond, let's move as God moves in our hearts. Pray for those that we want to see come to salvation or maybe even take the bold step yourself of coming down and talking with me about what it would be to become a 